0: Well, Merry Christmas, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online whilst strapping presents and sipping eggnog. That was funny, wasn't it? Okay. It's great to be with you. Um, and now to get us going, I wanted to give you a little bit of a Christmas quiz, some specifics to tell how well you know the Christmas story. So find someone next to you that's going to be your accountability partner. And uh, don't worry, it's multiple choice. And it's not going to be graded. So it's going to be okay. All right. Some of you just finished college exams. You're like, no more tests. All right. Here's the first question. It goes like this. According to the Bible, how did Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem? A, they rode a donkey. B, they walked. C, Joseph walked. Mary rode a donkey. Or D, it doesn't really say. All right. person next to you, lean over. Okay. Correct answer is D. It doesn't really say. But in all the movies, she's riding a donkey. Would you agree? There we go. All right. Number two. What does the Bible say that the innkeeper said to Mary and Joseph? Was it A? There's no room in the inn. Was it B? I have a stable patch you can use. Is it C? Both A and B? Or is it D? None of the above. The person next to you, whisper it to him. The correct answer is, in fact, D. None of the above. Which is awesome because as a child, for some reason, I was always the innkeeper whenever we did a Christmas play. And one day, here I am preparing a lovely Christmas vestige for all of you wonderful people. And I learned that there is no innkeeper. And so I need to find my old pastor and we need to have a little chit chat about that. You know what I'm saying? All right. Number three goes like this. Which animals does the Bible say were present at Jesus' birth? Was it A, cows, sheep, and goats? Was it B, Cows, donkeys, and goats. Was it C, only sheep and goats, or was it D, none of the above? Go ahead and uh, person next to you. <laughs> you're starting to see where I'm going here, aren't you? It is D, none of the above. Now, it is possible, probably even likely, that there were animals present, but we just don't know. All right, next question. Who was it who saw the star in the east? All right, you're just already guessing. <laughs> I will cut to the chase. It was E, all right, but here's the thing. A whole bunch of you were thinking, oh, it was the three kings because we sing that song, we three kings of Orient are, right? Well, here's the deal. I went back into the original Greek, no kings, okay? The word is magi, which is a Greek word that we translated directly into English, and it means magicians or astrologers. Just something to talk about while you're having your Christmas deal. All right, next one goes like this. According to the Bible, how many wise men came to see Jesus? Was it A, three, B, six, C, 12, or D? It doesn't say you're already getting where I'm going right yeah it actually doesn't really say but we all know it was three because it was like gold frankincense and myrrh and you can only bring one gift okay, it was like a gift exchange thing and that was the rules alright yeah. All right, <clears throat> let's go to this next one here where did the wise men find Jesus was it A. in a manger B. in a stable C. in a house or D. none of the above whisper to the person next to you see so yeah, how well you know this one it was in fact in a house Oh, snap, right? All right, here's the deal. When the wise men get there, it's been a period of time, and the text actually reads that Jesus was no longer a baby. He was a boy, and so they went to the house. And so that's the end of our quiz, and you're probably like, this is the weird— if you're visiting, by the way, you're like, what is going on right now? And I appreciate that, but I wanted to start there. There is a, there is a method behind the madness here. To start there, to point out that the way that most of us imagine the details of the first Christmas— Really wasn't anything like how Mary and Joseph would have experienced that first Christmas. The picture we have is really pretty romanticized. And, and here's the thing when you consider the historical and cultural context into which that first Christmas took place, you start to see that honestly, that first Christmas would have been confusing, frightening, and even a bit disturbing to the people who were involved, and here's why I say that. The characters in the Christmas story that we're so familiar with, they weren't characters in a story. They were people, people like you and me, people with plans and dreams and struggles and hopes and questions, people whose lives were dramatically interrupted when they experienced things that would have been as unusual to them as they would be to you or me. But here's the thing. I'm convinced that it's actually the emotional messiness of that first Christmas that makes it so compelling and beautiful and, as we'll see, hopeful. And with the rest of our time, I actually want to show you what I mean by that. So let me start with this. Just imagine with me what it must have been like for Mary and Joseph on the night of that first Christmas as they held a newborn baby named Jesus they would have been in a cave like, like this one. Uh, this is a cave uh, in Bethlehem, like as in the Bethlehem in the Bible just outside of Jerusalem. Um, and, and it would have been nothing like the wooden nativities that adorn coffee tables all over the world. The irony is, I have a friend named Johnny who owns a gift shop in Bethlehem. True story. It's called Johnny's Gift Shop. Not a very creative name. He sells these intricate olive wood nativities. And I'm like, Johnny... There's not enough wood in and around Bethlehem to make anything significant, and he says, "I know, but the tourists love it." Well, anyway, yeah, um, and he'll ship you one if you want. Johnny's Gift Shop. dot something. Anyway, um, but that night in that cave, holding the baby, Mary would have been completely exhausted. I mean, physically, mentally, and emotionally. Her life had become incredibly complicated since the moment, some nine months earlier, when an angel had unexpectedly paid her. visit. And that night she learned something. She learned that she had been chosen by God to give birth to the Savior of the world. Someone the Old Testament authors and prophets called the Christ or the Anointed One or the Messiah. And she knew that this was the one that her people had been waiting for for hundreds of years. And the angel also told her that this baby would be way more than just another baby. Not only would this baby be the Messiah, Somehow, God Himself would be the baby's father. And an early Jesus follower named Luke, uh, one of the places that we get the details of the Christmas story, recorded for us Mary's reaction to the news in his account of the life of Jesus. So, like, upon learning of, of God's intentions from the angel, here's what Mary says, and it's beautiful. She says, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one, speaking of God there, has done great things for me. Holy is His name. She, like, erupts in a song of praise. And and that was real in that moment. She felt loved and she felt blessed and she felt hopeful and she felt joyful. But see, if you stop and think about it, those emotions had to erode really quickly. Because after the angel left her, Mary was going to have to have a painfully awkward conversation with her fiancé, Joseph, during which she would have to inform him that an angel had visited her and told her that she was going to be pregnant with God's baby and as I imagine it, like Joseph would have looked back at her with tears in his eyes, but they would not have been tears of joy. They would have been tears of concern and confusion and frustration, maybe even betrayal. And we actually know that with a fair amount of certainty because, well, after that conversation, Luke tells us that Joseph decided to leave Mary quietly, at least until he too had an unexpected visit from an angel. And then there was like the day when Mary had to tell her parents. And all of us who are parents uh, just kind of put yourself in those shoes. And and once again, the news would have been met with confusion and perhaps anger and a whole lot of questions and not so much great joy. Uh, Her mother and dad had never imagined that their daughter would become pregnant outside of marriage. In first century Jewish culture, that was anathema. And... That reality that you just weren't supposed to have that happen as a young Jewish girl would have been all too real for Mary as she was forced to endure the judgmental stares of her neighbors as her belly steadily grew. As best we can tell, um, there were less than 400 people living in Nazareth, that's the village. Uh, where Mary and Joseph were living when the angel had visited them, which meant that everyone knew everyone, and everyone knew everyone's business, and Mary would have been the subject of countless rumors and conversations. And, And then like, came the day near the end of the pregnancy when Mary learned that a man named Caesar Augustus, who was the Roman emperor at the time, had issued a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world, which meant, practically speaking, that Joseph her wonderful husband had to travel some 90 miles to his ancestral hometown, a little shepherd's village just outside of Jerusalem called Bethlehem. And as it turns out, when this news is read, Joseph is pretty good at math and he quickly realized that because of the timing of the census, he might miss the birth of the baby. And apparently Mary figured that out too and informed Joseph that he would not be missing the birth of the baby she was going to go with him. And if Joseph raised any concerns about, you know, are you sure you want to? You're really close to giving birth. She would have said, trust me, I will be just fine. And so will the baby. I just have a good feeling about this. Everything is gonna happen right on time. And so they went. And uh, while well, Mary was highly favored by God and had been chosen to bring the savior of the world into the world, her circumstances, her circumstances, certainly didn't reflect that reality. Now, it's interesting to note that as Mary and Joseph approached Bethlehem, they would have walked in the shadow of a massive fortress palace called the Herodium. Here's an artist's rendering of that structure. It was absolutely massive. And after you go to visit Johnny at his gift shop, you can check it out. So right, uh, But in the first century, the Herodium was a vivid example of how the world in which Mary and Joseph lived needed to be rescued. Israel's king at the time, a man by the name of Herod the Great, had constructed the palace just a few miles from Bethlehem, on the edge of the Judean wilderness. And the Herodian represented power and control and influence, like the exact opposite of what Mary and Joseph would have felt that day. I I wonder if, as he was walking by, Joseph looks up, to the structure and thought something like, God, I, I don't know how, but I think you made a mistake. I mean, you, you could have asked anyone to raise your son. He could have been born into wealth and, and privilege and a family of influence. He could have lived like there. But you chose us. It makes no sense. We have nothing. We can offer nothing. We are nothing. Nothing. And so I imagine that Mary and Joseph would have been completely overwhelmed with emotion as they approached Bethlehem. But, and and this is key, even though they had more questions than answers, they kept walking and they kept trusting, even when the whole situation seemed impossible, And that was before the moment that they, um, after they reached the city, where they knocked on the door of Joseph's family home and found themselves in yet another awkward conversation. I imagine Joseph standing in front of Mary and the door opening and Joseph looking his grandfather in the eye and the grandfather informing Joseph that they had heard about the pregnancy. And they had heard how it happened outside of marriage, And Joseph learns, and Mary behind him, that the family wanted nothing to do with it. I imagine Joseph's grandfather looking him straight in the eye and saying something like, you're not having that baby with that girl in this home. Like, she's ruined your reputation. She will not destroy ours. You have that baby out where it belongs, out with the animals. And so like a short time before that first Christmas, Joseph and Mary find themselves walking up a hill to a cave where lambs, some of whom are raised to be sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem, were born. Jerusalem is only five miles from Bethlehem. Anyway, as as I imagine it, um, as they enter the cave, like the smell from the manure that covered the floor would have been unbearable. And there would have been like soot on the cave ceiling from generations of shepherds' fires. And it would have been dark inside and it would have been dirty And as Joseph entered the cave, I I can only imagine something that flashes through his mind. Like, okay, this is the place. This is the place that God has chosen for Mary to go into labor and to deliver his son, the Messiah, the Christ, the Rescuer, the Savior of the world. It just doesn't make any sense. And then came the chaos of labor and delivery. And and after that, and and sort of Mary resting with, with baby Jesus in her arms, I imagine Joseph looking out the cave at the night sky, and whispering a prayer to God that just began with one powerful word. Why? Like, God, why why all of a sudden does it feel like you've abandoned us? Uh, and, And why does nobody seem to believe us? And why will nobody help us? Like, God, you can do anything, so why don't you do something I mean, like, no one other than us even knows that Jesus was born. Couldn't you at least tell somebody? That would be a start. And as I imagined it in that moment, Joseph's eyes dropped to the horizon and come to rest on a few small figures who are slowly approaching the cave. Because as it turns out, God has told a few somebodies that Jesus had been born, but they weren't the somebodies anybody would be expecting. In an account of the life of Jesus, Luke records the moment earlier that evening when these unlikely characters learned the news. He described it this way. He said, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And if we're honest, when most of us like envision a shepherd, I mean, if you said to me, what's a shepherd look like before I did the study, I would have thought something like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings. Are you with me? Yeah. You're like, that's a shepherd. He's got like his beard game is strong. One of those guys, right? But see, shepherds in the first century wouldn't have had beards. Like even today, shepherds in the Middle East are between like 9 and 12 years old. This is the work of children. And many of them are poor and some of them are even homeless. And so for these shepherd boys, the night Jesus was born began pretty much like every other night. They're just sort of hanging out with their sheep. Until the moment when the normalcy was disrupted in a way that they would never forget. Here's what Luke tells us. He says, an angel... Of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And every time angels show up in the text, if you're reading it carefully, everybody's terrified, which makes sense. And then the next thing the angel always says is the same thing they say. The angel said, Do not be afraid, (laughs) right? Um, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I bring you. And it's easy to miss especially if we're overly familiar with the Christmas story, but the first people God chose to hear the good news of great joy that will be for all people were the last people that anyone would have suspected. I mean, like on the ladder of social status, these guys stood on the bottom rung, yet God wanted them to be the first to know, which in and of itself tells us something powerful about God and his heart towards people. Like, why would God choose the least influential group of human beings imaginable to be the first to know that the Savior of the world is born? Why would he choose people who had no credentials and no connections and no power and no influence? Like, the only reasonable answer to that question is that he really wanted everyone to know that he sent Jesus for everyone, even shepherds. And as the angel continues to speak, the shepherd boys learn the specifics of the good news. Here's what he tells them. He says, today in the town of David, that's Bethlehem, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He's the Messiah, the long-awaited, long-expected rescuer has finally come after hundreds of years of waiting, after hundreds of years of silence. God has kept his promise. He's finally here. And the angel continues. He says, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. In other words, God's son hasn't been born where you might expect. And you won't find him in a palace and he wasn't born to royalty In fact, as you'll soon see, he was born to, like, poor teenage parents whose relatives refused to allow them to a place in the family home to have the baby because they were ashamed of them. So the baby was born in a cave and wrapped in clothes that are generally intended for newborn lambs. And then the baby was placed in an animal food trough. Seriously, here's a picture of an ancient manger that you can have your picture taken with for $17 when you visit Bethlehem, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you almost can't imagine a more complete inversion of expectation. Like how in the world it makes no sense, but that's precisely the point. And as Luke continues, the shepherds decide to go and see the miracle with their own eyes. Luke records that they look at one another and they say, well, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. It goes on, so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. In other words, they were really there. Like, he was really there. Just like the angel said he'd be. And as I imagine this moment, like, tears would be flowing down Joseph and Mary's faces because the presence of those shepherd boys affirmed that God had not forgotten them. And that something incredible, something unprecedented was unfolding. That their lives and hopes and dreams had been profoundly interrupted by the story of God. And things for them and for the world would never be the same. As Luke continues, he, he tells us what, how the shepherds responded. He says, when the shepherds had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. It says, the shepherds returned, like they went back to their sheep, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And so my friends, um, that's the way that I believe the first Christmas went down. And honestly, um, and this is self-evident, it would make a lousy nativity set, But as I also mentioned, I think that's what makes it so powerful. Here's what I mean. When Christmas becomes too romanticized, too clean, I think it actually becomes harder to believe. It can start to feel too much like a story and not enough like history. But as we've just seen, the authors of those accounts of Jesus' life record a narrative that was absolutely full of, of grit, and dirt, and struggle, and fear, and hope. Because the first Christmas was a story full of grit, and dirt, and struggle, and fear, and hope. But here's the thing, it was also good news of great joy for all People, And it was a powerful reminder to us today that in spite of the adversity that we face from time to time in this life, that God still loves us. And even when he doesn't immediately rescue us from our challenging situations, we can trust that he still keeps his promises. And we can keep moving forward just like Mary and Joseph kept moving forward one step at a time, carrying their questions and concerns and doubts with them. But with the knowledge that God is with us, that God is for us, and that he is ahead of us ultimately telling a good story with our lives, even if the story that he's telling has challenging chapters in it. And that, honestly, that's cause for hope. Hope that can empower us to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Hope that reminds us that God is still at work behind the scenes in our lives, even when things don't make sense. Even in our darkest moments where the questions overwhelm us, He still is with us. He still believes in us. He still cries with us, and He still has a future in mind that He's inviting us to move into. And that, ultimately, He can be trusted. And so, my prayer for you, as I was as I was working up this this material this week, my prayer is, is simply that this Christmas, wherever life finds you, whatever your mess, whatever your concern, whatever your confusion that you would experience, hope, maybe for the first time in a long time. Because God sent Jesus for the world, but God also sent Jesus for you. Heaven came down for you. And that changes everything. That changes everything. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we gather in this place because 2,000 years ago you gave humanity a gift we least deserved and yet most needed. And we want to gather to worship and we want to gather to say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus for all of us. And thank you for the way he came because the way he came tells us so much about your heart for all of us. May we be people who enjoy the Christmas season, but may we be people who never forget the hope and the wonder at the heart of the real Christmas story. Please bless us with your grace and your peace as we celebrate with family and friends in the coming days. And it's in the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, that we pray. And everyone said, amen.